Chef Patchway. And today we're we have a guest with us and we want to have some insight about violence prevention regarding missing and murdered indigenous women and people as well as what is happening with other uh, factors that can contribute to violence including uh, trafficking uh, again this topic can be sensitive and triggering at the end of the show we'll give some resources in case you need to uh, talk to somebody welcome to this episode of war cry podcast we're an all native run podcast discussing data, events, stories, issues, and historical connections about Northwest missing and murdered natives. We are located on the Yakima uh, reservation and we wanna thank you for joining us for this episode. We are live streaming during the noon hour Pacific time. My name is Emily Washings and co-hosts today are Patsy Whitefoot, Robin Pibashi and Lucy Smartlowit. Our guest today is Chris Cuestas from the National Violence Prevention Resource Center. One of the announcements I'm gonna to give today is actually about a, a previous case from 2016, but it's somebody that always sticks out in my mind around this time. Uh, this is Frida Jane Knows His Gun, also known as Frida Knows Gun who went missing five years ago in a Kennewick, Washington Walmart on October 18th, 2016. And the reason why she, she sticks out, especially during this time of year, is that she was reported to have been trying to get home to take her kids trick-or-treating. And, you know, as a mother myself, you know, this is a big time for kids and their uh, holidays and traditions. And so I always think about that uh, story and her uh, intention, which is to <clears throat> get home. Uh, this information about uh, her family and her sisters trying to have their spirit speak to her spirit comes from a 2019 Billings Gazette article written by Tom Lutte. At the time that she went missing, she was 34 years old. Her current age would be 39. She is 150 pounds with brown hair and brown eyes. An area she could be missing is Billings, Montana or Kennewick, Washington. Uh, that is Washington State. And if you have information, please contact the Bureau of Indian Affairs at 406-638-2631. Again, it's 406-638-2631. Her name is missing person number is 36684. And just a note for those of you that have her on our Washington State Patrol list, missing person list episode, um, she currently is not listed as uh, missing on the Washington State Patrol missing persons list. Uh, so she is under Montana. If you remember with our interview with Ellie, she did share a chart in which she, uh, she had Frida knows his gun on, on there. So she is recorded in Montana. She is not recorded in Washington. And I want to actually turn it over to our guests to introduce themselves and the organization they represent. Again, this conversation, oh my gosh, I have the like world's biggest fly, sorry. Uh, this, this conversation is a lot like, uh, you know, if we were at a diner talking to our guest and they uh, and you were, I don't want to say fly on the wall, but that's just on my mind right now because there's this buzzing around me. 
<laughs> I don't want to reduce our audience to flies, but let's say you were at the table next to us and you're overhearing our conversation. So again, we know this topic is triggering. We know it's hard for a lot of members of our audience to hear this level, but we do like to bring a coffee style conversation into this um, very uh, heavy and big topic. So Chris, go ahead and let us know uh, who you are and some of your background. Uh, Chris Questus uh, with the National Violence Prevention Resource Center. Uh, previously was a uh, uh, case detective for the Tucson Police Department in their street gang unit, where I had the opportunity to work uh, gang activity for 18 of my 25 years. Uh, subsequently became a member of a federal hardcore addiction team, where I was the, the lead detective of uh, cases with regards to uh, violence and and gangs throughout the uh, Southwest part of the United States. And also was able to satellite throughout uh, pretty much the country in doing training because we were, there was such a demand for uh, trained individuals to go into communities to do awareness empowerment training so, and uh, work with other agencies to help them to become active in addressing some of the, the community violence that they were dealing with and subsequently their gang. Problem. So I had uh, tremendous uh, opportunities uh, set in my direction, and I got the opportunity to do a, a lot of training. I developed a lot of uh, programs, uh, training programs. I think I have uh, uh, about 32 of them now that I have that goes all the way from bullying all the way to uh, MMIW and gang prevention and uh, truancy reduction and things of that nature. And one of the things I learned when I was very uh, young in law enforcement was that I just didn't want to be someone that would uh, feed the revolving door of, uh, of criminal behavior in our country. I wanted, I wanted to do more with what I knew in my experience. So I really started getting involved in prevention and community connection to addressing some of the root causes. Because uh, number one, I got tired of investigating the symptoms because that's all, that's all we were doing was being responsive to the symptoms and we were, we were facing, we were, chasing shootings. So we'd go from one shooting to another shooting, from a homicide to another homicide. And we never really addressed the underlying root causes. And I started asking those questions of our community. What could we do and what did you want from us? And what could we change in the way that we delivered our our criminal justice system to the to the our environment? And it really started opening some opportunities for our community to make some make some differences. So I've kind of I, I've enjoyed that. I really enjoyed it. I like uh, seeing people's lives uh, turned around and seeing young people's lives become productive and uh, dealing with individuals that had tragedy. And, uh, and I can tell you that there's no I haven't had met a criminal offender yet that didn't have a, a negatory up a negative upbringing or, or a risk factors in their home or their community that contributed to their their behavior so and we need to look at the picture holistically and i really enjoy doing that with my this is my 42nd year of doing prevention and intervention and, and uh, violence and crime reduction uh throughout the country and i, I really i like the like that better than i did doing the investigative detective work although it seems to be an upsurge in quality need needing quality investigators again so that's my background I, I started working in tribal communities in in 1996 as a result of a criminal investigation i was doing in southern arizona 
and found out that there was just so, so many differences between uh, tribal lands and non-tribal lands when it came to uh, responding to criminal behavior. And I, I really took on uh, accepting some of those challenges and helping tribal communities address those. I actually developed a, uh, a, a program called CRIPS, which is Gang Reduction Through Intervention, Prevention and Suppression that I, had, I authored and, and put together and, and had it evaluated by the Department of Justice and received the best practice to uh, work with tribal communities to deliver this uh, multifaceted strategy. So I really, I've really learned from every aspect of, of addressing violence in tribal communities and, and I enjoy working with uh, communities across the country. So that's pretty much what I'm uh, still doing at this particular point in time in my life and watching my grandkids grow up. Great. I appreciate you sharing your range of resources. And, you know, before we started, our team was already asking all the questions. Uh, we do go in our age order. So I'll turn it over to Robin for our first question. Hello, Christopher. Thank you again so much for joining us. Um, I've just heard so many great things about you and your knowledge. So I'm really honored that you're here to be able to speak with us. Um, also, you sound like a very busy person. So again, I'm glad you're here. <laughs> uh, so the main question I guess that's on my mind is we spoke a little bit before we started recording about what different parts of the country look like and how they approach MMIW uh, and MMIP cases or issues uh, epidemic essentially that's going on that has been going on but I would like to know from what your experience has, has either with the Northwest or with the Yakima Valley in general, what does that look like? What are contributing factors to MMIW and MMIP cases? I think there's a, there's a lot of uh, challenges and I think that there's some factors that I think uh, challenge the individual that is actually responsive to the the case itself. And I think first and foremost is uh, dialogue between agencies. It's, it's such a challenge for networking. Uh, when you come from a metropolitan community, you, you dialogue and communication is a given. But when you work with other agencies, you see that there is really a reluctance to share information and knowledge and databases. And I know that you, you mentioned NamUs, uh, they must as one of the databases that is used in the Pacific Northwest, but there are so many other databases that uh, tribal agencies still haven't had the ability to access. Uh, there's one called TAP, which is Tribal Access Program, which basically TAP, uh, some tribal law enforcement agencies have it and some tribal law enforcement agencies don't have it. And what that does is that you're able to get an idea of services that a tribal member has used or is used and when when was the last opportunity that they use those resources like when they last paid their rent when they last paid their utilities when they last had uh you know their gas turned off and things of that nature or their cell phone service still in use and things of that nature that kind of feed the the investigator to look for leads and opportunities to be able to uh, because what it comes down to when you're working uh, MMIW, MMI cases, is establishing the last known contact. Uh, 
and the anticipated direction or the anticipated path that the victim was uh, was headed towards. And then in between those two points, you have to establish a timeline. Where could they possibly have gotten from the time that you last lost, last lost contact with them to where you believe they were headed? And then you start working on that timeline and contacts and family and individuals and friends and associates and try to close that, that web. So the more information you receive to uh, get that knowledge of access to resources, the more likely, like knowing when they last made a, a withdrawal from the ATM card or somebody made a withdrawal from their bank account. That information is, it closes that window even further and gives you more of an opportunity to kind of be more targeted in your, your investigation and target your resources. Uh, but the challenges that I'm finding in working with tribal communities is a lot of a lot of tribes are very secretive with exchanging that information out to the the public uh, and into law enforcement. You don't see that there's a uh, you know there's no protocol in place from tribe to tribe on we do we do one two three four five if someone is turned up missing or the family has had no contact within that person. And what's the time frame before we could consider that person at risk? There's not a protocol. And what I'm what I see tribes trying to do, as I see tribes uh, trying to establish their own MMIW, MIP task force, but uh, it has to begin to move in the direction of wanting uh, uh, resources and protocols and processes and policies in place. Uh, I, I totally support the indigenous uh, women's movement to uh, recognize the issue and to get attention to it. But it's at the point, in my opinion, it's at the point now where we have to start holding people accountable for why do we still have these challenges? Why do we not? Why does why does the federal law enforcement not speak to local law enforcement? Why does it take uh, anywhere from 10 to 15 days to write a police report and to get that police report into a recognized database. Which database do we have access to? And uh, some of these databases, the, the tribal law enforcement or BIA law enforcement, they just don't want to pay the fee to access the, the database. It's the same with a cell phone. The, uh, an example of that is uh, to crack a cell phone is what we call it. To crack a cell phone, basically download all the data from a cell phone. It, it costs a crime lab that has to do that or someone that has the technology anywhere between $1,000 to $2,500 to do that. But some departments just don't want to pay the money because they don't have it in their budget. So they don't, until the case becomes a federal case, whatever that whatever constitutes a federal case, then they use access to crime federal crime labs right, that they is paid by the taxpayer, uh, then they will open that, that that cell phone and find out what data is in there that's relevant to their investigation. And in the meantime, we could lose, the trail could go completely cold because they chose not to pay that, that money to have that phone opened and accessed. And the same thing with the database. And databases are kind of lifelines to criminal investigations. What was the cost of the cell phone fee? I've seen it everywhere from $1,500 to $2,500 to download data, to have someone uh, 
so that is a technician download the data accurately because you just don't want to give it to a patrol officer that has the software in his computer because they don't know what they're looking for. They're just going to dump everything. But you want somebody that, that knows how to work with the software and specific to your timeline that you're looking for. And then you also have to remember that you have to get the cell phone, meaning that someone in the family has to be in a position to you know, surrender that cell phone. And some families won't do that. Some families refuse to do that because they're, you know, there's a, there's a lot of distrust in investigative resources and I don't, I don't blame them, you know. Robin, do you have a response? That's a lot to take in, you know, and it just makes us all, <laughs> yeah, Lucy's like, yes. Uh, makes us all realize that, yeah, the culmination of just our seasons and just asking questions really kind of gives us um, a lot of those same, you know, conclusions. And a lot of the times, I think just, just as a, a tribal member, having those criticisms sometimes of where tribes are or where law enforcement agencies are, we always try to be diplomatic. But I know sometimes it just needs to be said that, like, we all, we, we know we're all working, but we definitely need more action on this. And so thank you so much for kind of generalizing and summarizing kind of how we feel and from what we've seen and observed. And that's my point. That's my point of view. If we could just get action on issues, if we had a, uh, I, I trained law enforcement and I had, uh, I supervised law enforcement and there was some instances where I had to give them a checklist on what I expected them to accomplish on a case and bring that case back to me as the supervisor to determine that everything was done appropriately uh, in order for a decision to be made on that case. Well, that, that doesn't exist in tribal lands and it doesn't exist with some of these agencies that we believe are responsible to investigate our lost loved ones. Uh, they kind of do it on their own and, uh, on a whim and what they think is, I mean, there's no playbook. And if we could just get every tribe to have a protocol and a process on what the minimum steps are required for this type of investigation and make sure that every one of those, even though these cases are astronomical with regards to numbers, we need to, we need to go back and ensure that all those steps were taken on all of those cold cases. And uh, I, for one, and I'm sure you you are the same way, I grow frustrated with the fact that, well, we can't tell you anything because the case is, quote, under investigation, which, in my opinion, is nonsense because the case is just sitting there, meaning no one is doing anything with it. What harm is it going to do by releasing information that is vital for the community to get involved? Uh, it's, it should it, Pause on that, Chris. Hold on. Okay. Hold on. That ties into like a, a, a ongoing question that we've had on this podcast from several guests. And I want to make sure to recap this appropriately um, using your 42 years of expertise. <laughs> um, so what Chris is describing is when family members, including family members of uh, homicide or uh, that are being investigated, missing that are presumed dead, when they ask for updates from the uh, federal government about their cases, um, the response is often, we do not comment on ongoing investigations. 
Um, right. Family members frequently see this. It is a frustration and a, a call a call from families to just give updates. Let us know that somebody's on it. And so Chris is really recapping that um, at a really high skill level. So I just, <laughs> I, want, I just want to recap it for some of our audience that are uh, just chewing their sandwich and trying to take it all in. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, I've, what I have suggested, Emily, and I'm sorry to interrupt, what I have suggested to tribes that I've worked with is that establish a resolution on what your expectations are from your U.S. attorney's office when it comes to your cold cases and expect and request or demand, if you, if you need a better word, demand an update on what is, this, what is the case status of our loved one? Where is that now? Uh, and then what, are, what do you need? What are you missing in this case to reopen and reinvestigate that particular uh, investigative lead, uh, but to leave them in a box cold in a warehouse somewhere is not doing the 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 family or the community any good because you, you these communities need closure and the families need closure. Uh, so sitting on the fact that you're it's under investigation is you can move past that. It's just it's stubbornness, it's stubbornness and it's just reluctance. Uh, and it has to, the tribes can push forward by um, by resolution having the U.S. attorney or file a, an order to show cause. Why can't we have more information on our loved one that has been missing for 25 years? What is it going to hurt the investigation by giving us some information? And the other thing that I would request, if you're going to do that, also uh, ask that that case be reinspired submitted for uh, new technology, for DNA, for ballistics, for evidence, for hair, for fiber. That technology is ongoing all the time. There's new updates and upgrades. I just read something today uh, on uh, Chief Sittable's family using new technology to determine ancestry, because it, but it's brand new technology. Uh, is, is this new technology being used with all these new old cold cases. And I would venture to say probably not. So. Yeah, we, um, on that note, we just had the exhumation of uh, an identified woman that was found on the Yakima reservation uh, in 1988. So that's 33 years ago. Um, she had not been uh, had DNA taken uh, and that just took place. Uh, that process just started again a couple weeks ago. Um, so that's a really good, I mean, those are very fancy uh, terms and process. And I really like the proactive aspects of it. And I just, I want to hear why <laughs> we talked about, um, you talked about whether or not a case goes federal. And in the Yakima Nation, it's really confusing to see why there's a, a federal reward for a missing person's case, sometimes up to $10,000. But for other missing persons cases, there's no, uh, F it doesn't seem to be have an FBI involvement. It seems to stay with the tribe as lead enforcement and there's no reward. Uh, we see another case with Talela uh, of a $10,000 reward. What, what 
what is the, what are those factors? And if they're unknown, can you recap that a little bit for us about what what do you know about why they're choosing certain cases to have rewards? Well, the, the issue is, and I, I researched this for my uh, webinar that I did for the IHS conference. The issue is, is that there's uh, certain tribes have acquiesced to the state with regards to uh, jurisdiction. Uh, and there's longstanding treaties that have language that says that the federal government may investigate certain crimes in tribal lands. Now, being a, a lifelong law enforcement officer, May tells me that I don't have to do it, or May tells me that I have options. Uh, and if uh, I get a case that doesn't look solvable, or if I get a case that doesn't look like I'm going to have cooperation from the family or the tribe, I can, under the May umbrella, I can uh, send that case to a different jurisdiction within the state to manage it instead of having to, under shall, investigate all uh, violent crime or all MMIW, MIP cases in uh, tribal lands. I had a... Uh, there, I picked up, I found a video uh, from a professor uh, from Montana that did a really good job explaining it. She explained jurisdiction and she explained the layers of jurisdiction. And it, she showed a graphic of all of these uh, dwindling connections uh, of lines and said that if any of those lines are severed, the case gets dissolved. It doesn't go anywhere. Uh, and that's because of the state's agreement, the treaties, and the federal government's agreement with the tribes themselves. So, and I, I can uh, easily copy that and send it to you if you, ever, if you want to use it or view it, but it's very, it was very good. And it really opened some ideas for, it gave some concepts to me. Uh, and there's another video called Broken Promises that comes from Montana. And it talks about the problem with their their jurisdiction where the states have the rights to determine whether they can investigate certain cases or not they so they so they basically have the ability to pick and choose uh and i'm i'm assuming that's what's happening to some of these cases that are that are uh driving tribal communities crazy is that they've they've decided which case they want to work in which case they don't want to where when I when I was doing my cases, I, I had no choice. I had to work all of the cases and try to bring justice to all of the families. Uh, but that's different in a municipality than it is uh, federal owned because there's so many layers of jurisdictions. So uh, that's kind of, that's probably the best answer I can give you is that the the treaties and the policies and the jurisdictional challenges outweigh the. But the environment and the atmosphere and the types of cases have changed. So I think we as community members and tribal members and tribes, we need to address those issues. Remember I talked about earlier about we need to start looking for solutions and answers within these layers of challenges. That's one of the questions that I think need to be resolved is how do we address this jurisdictional issue where people don't have the ability to acquiesce on some of these cases. That's to me, that would be a priority, especially now because we 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 have this issue at the forefront. 
So let's let's look for some challenges and some changes, and let's address these these issues now. Because unfortunately, the, the climate's not changing. I, I wish I could tell you the climate is changing, but it's not. You have you have the trafficking industry that's cartel driven and driven by uh, inter multinational criminal organizations, and they see the the profitability and the the revenue stream. Uh, by trafficking ladies and men and two-spirit individuals. And the fact that you have all of these, there's a disadvantage for law enforcement right now. And that hasn't, that unless we can close that window, one of the things you just talked about is jurisdiction. Unless we can close that window relatively quickly, then they're gonna to continue to have the, and then they're, they're using full advantage of technology. If there was something that I could do personally, is to explain to the tribes how technology plays into the trafficking challenge of tribal lands because technology is crazy and it's so advanced for parents and community members where our kids are being trafficked and addressed. I saw a graphic the other day that uh, 72% of 11 to 13 year olds receive a troll uh, once, once every three days by a predator just on their their phone from a known predator in their region. Wow, that's that's a staggering, that's a uh, jaw-dropping statistic. And that's scary, so scary. I appreciate your insight. I feel, I mean, having like a athletic background and being in so many sports, you just have this coach voice. And for those <laughs> that are new to missing and murdered indigenous women and the multi-jurisdictional issues, we don't even know what game we're playing. We don't have any rule book for how to do this. When families have questions, there's no like set process and where to go. And so, uh, Chris, you have a very good coaching of <laughs> some answers and steps. I want to turn it over to my uh, co-host Lucy for her question. Hi, Chris. Um, I have so many questions, but and, and I'm trying to be very um, diplomatic in my initial reactions to some of the things that um, I'm hearing. But I, I would be actually curious um, to hear from you a little bit more about how technology plays into human trafficking and what human trafficking um, things we need to be aware of here in the Pacific Northwest and more specifically on the Yakima Reservation, because my understanding is that you have been here before um, and done some trainings. And so I'm, I'm just really curious to hear what type of things you've observed, um, any statistics that you may know of and, and so forth. Yeah, I do, I do have data uh, because I try to make my presentations data-driven instead of uh, experiential, which uh, a lot of times people, uh, you know, conflict with, which is fine with me. But uh, yeah, unfortunately, uh, what I saw was number one is the region has a significant gang problem. And uh, the Yakima tribe is right in the middle of some, uh, at least six very hostile gangs that don't like each other. And those gangs are connected to criminal organizations and criminal enterprises. Uh, and the Mexican mafia and the Western Familia are the two uh, prison gangs slash cartels that are calling the shots for the street gang members. 
Uh, and remember, those those organizations are not only connected to the cartels in Mexico, but they're also connected to the prison systems. So they have a wide range of ability to impact the region. The one of your your uh, challenges is that you you have a transient uh, uh, population because of the uh, the climate and the industry, which is agricultural. Uh, and because it's a labor-driven industry, you have a lot of individuals that can come in for short periods of time. Uh, and even if one or two generations of that uh, family are there for the for the industry or for agriculture, you are going to have some individuals that are going to engage in some of the local uh, dynamics of the gang subculture. So, uh, and that unfortunately still is locked in the issue of, of drug trafficking, sex trafficking, and uh, criminal intimidation for the purposes of territory control. And that's where a lot of your criminal act engagement comes from, is its territorial control. Uh, because they want to, they want to uh, control different sides of the tracks. Uh, literally in in Yakima, they want to control different sides of the tracks. And all of your all of your train uh, signaling uh, boxes are identified that way. You have the gangs that are saying, "This is our area. You stay out of here." And on the backside of that has, "This is our area. You stay out of here." Uh, and the problem is, and the challenge is, is that you have a certain percentage of your tribal youth that will f uh, believe that uh, they have to participate in that love, that behavior, because of camaraderie, friendships, uh, relationships, uh, relatives, or even uh, the fact that they are at a high risk uh, family with loss, uh, loss of cultural identity. So they begin, they begin this visual vision quest to look for identity and the street identity is one that's prevalent and it gives them a sense of power, especially when you begin to see the, uh, the control over the certain communities and also you see the, the influence of weapons. That's one of the things that really disturbed me was when I went on uh, and I'll, I'll give you one of my secrets, when I started creeping on Facebook for all of the Yakima kids, I found so many displays of handguns that these kids were readily posing. And I, there was a couple of kids that had were gunshot wound victims and they were showing their gunshot holes that were still filled with gauze from when they went to get medical treatment. Uh, so that to me tells me that there's already a, uh, a mentality that it's okay to engage in that type of behavior. So high speed that, after a while, the ter territorial challenges are not enough for them. So they start getting involved in criminal enterprise behavior. And one of those criminal enterprise behaviors is drug trafficking and human trafficking, sex trafficking, because those are revenue streams that are available to the black market. And that's what they look for. Uh, so is there a couple of things that you have to that has to be prevalent in that community in order for that revenue stream to be present. Number one, trucking, the trucking industry. And you know as well as I do that you cannot move those crops from point A to point B unless you have a, a large amount of trucking. The second thing is uh, areas of concentration where there's revenue 
and gaming is one of those areas. So you can go into an area, you can either cleanse, you can clean dirty money or turn money over, uh, money laundering, or you can begin to use that as a point of recruitment. And I, I, I witnessed that when I was there. I saw some, some people, some Mexican nationals that thought I was Native American, which is fine. Uh, I'm half. Uh, they were communicating with each other. I understood everything, every word that they were saying. And they, what they were doing was they were pointing out girls to each other uh, it, at the casino. They're pointing out girls and wanting to uh, connect with them or possibly target them or see if they had any interest in uh, anything that they had to offer. And they do it through coercion. There's only three ways to traffic a person, coercion, promise, and violence. Those are the only three ways that a person, uh, a female gets indoctrinated into the trafficking industry. But remember there's that this is very lucrative, very lucrative for a criminal organization. Uh, the average uh, prostitute that is uh, involved in a uh, criminal enterprise, uh, they can make up to 140000 a year. Uh, so the more you get into your stable, the more profit you bring into the organization. Because they're connected to cartels and they're connected to Nuestra Familia and uh, Mexican Mafia, they have to kick up a tax anywhere from 10 to 20%. So whatever they make, they have to kick that up to the uh, the cartel and the criminal organization that they are umbrellaed under. So uh, that's part of how the, the revenue and the profit goes forward. So I, and then of course the drug trade, you know, it's a, unfortunately it's a clear shot. That's, that's one of the challenges is this, uh, uh, highway trafficking of narcotics that comes in from point A to point B. The the narcotics are not from the Yakima tribe. They're imported. It's an imported product. So what has to happen is they, the community, the tribe, whatever you want to call it, they have to come up with an interdiction strategy to begin to interdict that, whether it's getting your uh, canines to search the PO boxes or have the canines search the Amtrak that's coming in or the trucks or uh, or do uh, roadblocks on the highway systems or have more of an active uh, strategy in place to uh, begin to do interdiction because it's coming from so different points to the Yakima tribe. But that has to be a strategic plan. That has to be a strategic plan. And then the tri I think the tribe, in my opinion, needed to have uh, codes in place with regards to gang activity uh, and then how the tribe is going to respond to that criminal activity committed by uh, both tribal and non-tribal members. Uh, because if you sit back and allow them, they don't have any problem establishing dominance. Uh, this has been, the, that has been the way of uh, the criminal enterprise forever. So, uh, and it's like I said, it's a money-making organization now. So I hope that answers some of your questions. Or I made things worse for you. Well, it, it did bring a lot more questions that I want to ask, but I want to be mindful of our viewers and also our other co-hosts. Um, so I want to transition this over to Patsy. 
and to see um, if she has any questions about what you've gone over or um, any new questions that she may have. Uh, I just wanted to find out, Robin, if there are any beer questions. Okay. All right. Don't be, so, don't be afraid of me. Go ahead and ask questions. Now's your time. <laughs> One of the things that I tell people when I do my conferences is that I have answered every question pretty much having to do with trafficking, violence, gang activity, drug interdiction. So I've been there and done that. So uh, I do the best I can. Don't be afraid of me. Uh, so far, viewers, how long ago were you here? And then also is the um, the conference that was held with the Indian Health Service available nationally for viewing as well? It was who through... Did work, who did you work with when you were here? I worked with the uh, uh, substance abuse program, and they brought me in two years ago in... Uh, uh, I believe it was March, and we did a two a three day conference. We did uh, gang prevention for two days, and we did sex trafficking uh, empowerment training the third day. And we had a full house every one of those days. It was really impressive. Uh, I know we set it up for we set it up for like eighty, and we had over hundred both days. And we had people that came down from Spokane. Uh, Seattle, Warm Springs, from and all over the region, uh, which was I thought was really really cool. So, uh, but I had, there was a follow up to that. What was supposed to happen was I spent ten days in your community. Uh, the three days were just the training. The other seven days was my assessment. I committed I committed those days to doing an assessment of the region and. Uh, developing a, a assessment of what I saw were the risk factors, and then also a strategic plan on how to be responsive to those risk factors. Uh, and subsequently, that, that action plan for the tribal community. Uh, we never got to that because uh, COVID kind of just came in and made some changes. Uh, and so I was scheduled to go before council to present my findings, uh, but uh, it never happened. And uh, subsequently, I had requests for training. Uh, still in existence right now. Uh, and uh, the IHS conference was put on by the uh, University of Nebraska, and that was an online virtual conference, and that was just uh, last month. And there was four hundred over four hundred fifty people that signed up from uh, tribes across the country, and that was a four day conference. I had uh, one day session. I was the I was the keynote. One of the there was three keynotes. I was one of the I was the first keynote, and I uh, the first session was on. Uh, why tribal women and girls are at risk for sex trafficking in tribal lands. Uh, and the second session was uh, uh, street drugs, street drug identification and responses for community members, parents, and uh, tribal communities, uh, which is unfortunately the fentanyl, fentanyl challenge right now in tribal lands is really, 
the synthetic fentanyl is really a problem and coming up with responses to that. Uh, and I had uh, the trafficking session. I had uh, 393 people attend, uh, which they said has never happened before. And then the drug session, I had 273 people, 273 people attend. So, uh, and it was, yes, it was recorded and it's on the, uh, one of the co-sponsor was the Great Plains uh, Tribal Chairman's Health Board. And they recorded it both, they recorded all four days. Uh, and uh, we had uh, a Q&A after every session, which was uh, a lot of fun, a lot of really good, solid, strong questions. Uh, but I, when I did the drug, I did street drugs that are prevalent right now uh, that a lot of community members are asking questions about. Uh, everything from synthetic fentanyl all the way down to uh, uh, whipped cream uh, <laughs> that a lot of kids are inhaling, unfortunately. Uh, and we told them, we talked about uh, not just what it looks like nomenclature, but what the symptoms that parents and community members are going to probably see. And also we talked about where to search in their homes and how kids conceal that those types of items in the home as well. Uh, and then what they can, the steps they can take uh, in three stages uh, as either a parent, a program member, or a uh, uh, tribal uh, leader uh, to address those issues. So that was where we did the, uh, that was the one that was 273 people. I, I actually I actually had that presentation ready to deliver for your tribe as well, but because of my challenges with uh, contractual, then never went anywhere. So, but I still have the presentation. I have that one in sex trafficking presentation ready to be available as soon as we get something figured out. But I might still be waiting another year from now. I don't know. Okay. I did have a question. I just wanted to get to this information, make it available for the audience. But um, there was a question that Emily's asking, what was the age range of trafficking at our casino? What did you observe to be the age range? Well, unfortunately, we're seeing that age range go down. And uh, I think right now the target age is 11 to 14. What I was seeing was probably uh, 18 and above. So I'd say probably 18 to 21, the girls that I was uh, concerned about. And I pointed them out to security and I, I brought to their attention and uh, told them how they're probably communicating. But, uh, uh, you know, one of the issues that I found this in, and I use this in my presentation, is that uh, there's some data that came out that uh, said that 72% uh, of uh, tribal girls that are targeted will leave the reservation to meet the predator. They agree to meet that predator, which is very startling. That's that's really unfortunate. So that that tells you that they're looking they're looking for identity and looking for connection. They're looking for uh, you know some type of of support and love in their lives, and uh, will pursue those contacts even knowing that there's a risk. Uh, so that's unfortunate. 
But, uh, and then one of the other things I told the audience and I would say here as well is that parents, there's a, there's probably 10 different, uh, apps that you can load to track your kids' cell phones that I would highly, highly suggest because you can, uh, there's some of it that's pretty advanced that if there is a, a suspicious or unknown connection, you can, you can terminate the contact from your phone without your son or daughter knowing. So. So thank you so much. That's a lot of information. And like everyone said, we had a lot of questions, but trying to be mindful of our time and your time as well. So in your discussion with people around our area, we've had a number of women over the years who have been missing. And uh, historically, there has been discussion and it's also been noted that there has been a serial killer here or serial killers we don't know, but um, in my case, my sister's been missing over 30 years in the closed area of the reservation. And, um, and there's really not been good uh, law enforcement response to that. And so when Emily talked about the Parker Doe uh, case, uh, we went to uh, see the place where this woman was located and I also um, just shared information with the coroner as well. They called me to ask me if it could be my sister and I said no and, and I continued to follow up with them. And then I've also gotten phone calls from other state patrol offices of missing women who've been missing over the years. And so, you know, I'm wondering if, you know, what, what do you know, what can be done with women who've been missing such as the one we just talked about with um, the Parker Doe. What recommendations do you have for families for those that have been missing many, many years? And in the case, in the case of my sister, she was missing and she, uh, personal items were found in the closed area of the reservation. And I've talked about this publicly and also to the media, you know, those that are have access to the closed reservation, closed part of the reservation. Of course, our tribal members, um, uh, logging the logging industry, there's a heavy logging industry here, um, as well as a law enforcement. And then in addition to that, we have non-natives that come onto the reservation in a closed area as well. And, and I've experienced that just because I live here at the foothills of the mountains seeing Mexican people coming out of the reservation who were lost and even know where they were. They didn't even know where they were at. I just happen to, you know, drive around sometimes because I'm right near the mountains, but I don't go too far. So, yeah. That's first of all, uh, that's, I can't tell you how sad that makes me feel that you have not, you're gotten any closure on your missing loved one. That's just, I just can't imagine what, you know, what feelings are you and your family deal with on a, on a regular basis? What I would, what I would do, I would start by uh, contacting someone, um, an attorney or uh, someone that does uh, pro bono work. And there may be even attorneys now I was watching, I was reading under this, uh, the uh, Montana uh, MMIW task force has some pro bono attorneys and I would, I would ask to file an order to show cause and an order to show cause basically is a uh, order before the courts. Uh, you might even want to connect that to, uh, under the freedom of information act. Uh, you can 
asked to have the case file reopened so that you can review it. Uh, and if they uh, if they need to redact information, let them redact information, but at least you'll get some idea of where the case went and where they dropped it and where they stopped following up on. And then begin to try to see if you if there's little opportunities where you can get some questions answered. They have to release the certain reports to you that are not that are not covered under the confidentiality umbrella under the Freedom of Information Act. It, community, community members do that all across the country all the time. So that's one thing that I would do is file within the court system to, to try to view the file and see if see if they have if they if the file uh, denotes the actual progress that they said they did or didn't do in the case. And then if there's any uh, chance that since her uh, property was recovered for the resubmission of that property into uh, a uh, laboratory of some time to some type to see if you can, uh, you know, recover any forensic evidence from that, that personal property, if they release that personal property to the family. Uh, uh, and then I would, you know, one of the reasons that we were able to find this one young lady a couple of weeks ago was Facebook, just using social media. I mean, the family was so upset. They just said, forget the police department. Let's just do this ourselves. So, and you know, uh, what they did was they, they did like a, uh, 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 just an advertisement uh, flooding of Facebook of their, a flyer of their loved one for any additional leads or any information. Uh, and then we found the, luckily found the license, they found the license plate number. And when they got that license plate number, they started contacting people to, uh, if they knew who the vehicle was, who it belonged to, things of that nature. So look for vehicles as well. Uh, if you have a, a car, if there's a car involved, uh, and you need some information on the car, uh, law enforcement is reluctant to release that to you. Uh, Carfax does a really good job of, of tracking uh, maintenance of vehicles. Uh, that's how we found the white van in California was through Carfax. Uh, so those are some things that I would suggest you look into and uh, just try to get some reports released to you so that you can begin to ask those more pointed questions not and that's one of the challenges in my opinion is we need to get away from this general questions and get into you know why did this person do this with my loved one's case and come up with an explanation and and don't stop don't stop just because they're retired they're still there's still accountability and responsibility and i think in my opinion and I, this might upset your viewers but uh my opinion is one of the reasons why a lot of these MMIW cases are just closed and stored because of inappropriate law enforcement techniques, investigative techniques. And they don't want to go back and open those cases and found out that the law enforcement official did a bad job because that's going to open a whole new can of worms and they don't want to do that. But if we if 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 we want to solve this, there's got to be transparency. There has to be transparency. If that person didn't do their job, there needs to be accountability because it's our loved ones that are missing, not yours. Uh, so, you know, we want answers to those questions, specific questions. 
And if you have problems drafting those specific questions, give me a call. <laughs> I'll tell you what, the, what you can ask. If they say, well, you know, the case is this, 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 and this, and I can, I can give you some specific questions to ask. They might not like it, but yeah. oh well. And well, I was going to try to be general in the question I was going to ask, but I thought this is, um, you know, a situation that's been going on for many years. And it's not just my sister, but it's other women uh, who were found in our closed area of the reservation who were killed and their, you know, the remains were located in the mountains as well. So, and other women missing. And, um, you know, there are so many stories. I'm not going to share them all, but um, yeah, I just want to be able to. You know, again, help families. And as I've said before, every family member responds to this uh, in different ways. And, you know, this is an ongoing issue, but I really appreciate everything that you've shared with us in an open manner. And I especially am appreciative of holding one another accountable, particularly if you're going into this field. And I was just curious about your background. What education was your background or was your the education, the school of hard knocks? So, and I'll close there. Sound it was a com like combination, combination of both. Combination both is right. It's a combination of both. I went to our local university for a number of years and then I joined the Air Force and became a uh, military police officer. And then uh, because of an opportunity that, I, that we had, the... Uh, local police department came on our military base and was recruiting people for a specific assignment. And because I was from Tucson, I volunteered and transitioned into the police academy and was minding my own business doing regular old patrol work and uh, downtown Tucson. And one night I was uh, taking down some barricades in the, in the roadway and got run over by a drunk driver. They hit me head on and uh, just uh, severely injured me and I was out of commission for a number of months and then uh, I was assigned to the gang unit as the intelligence officer and uh, I, people tell me all the time that uh, that was not uh, a coincidence that was the creator that uh, put me in that that position to start working gangs and uh, uh, I really had uh, a lot of eye-opening experiences of working gangs, investigating violent crime, and working with loved ones of family members, and I just felt an attachment to them, and I felt that they they uh, they they expected and deserved justice, and that was my job. My job was to bring them justice and closure, and even though there was times that I was at odds with my department because the and I used to explain to my other detectives and officers is that the police department is not an entity. Uh, you know, all it's, it's a badge. That's, that's what it's, you're working for a badge or you're working for a community. And if you work for a community, your community expects answers and they expect devotion. And it was my opinion that that was my responsibility to my community was to be devoted to them and to help them in any way possible to help them with their investigations and do the very best that I possibly could. And uh, that's pretty much what I did. I, I was ended up with right around three, 400 cases. Uh, I had a 97% conviction rate. And uh, I, but they, I didn't take no for an answer. I just did not take no from answer from anyone. 
I didn't take no for an answer from the judges, from the attorneys, from my commanders, because I felt that I was compelled to help this grieving family and this grieving loved one to make sure that I did the very best to make sure that their case was solved. And I had an explanation to why their loved one lives was taken and why their life was lost. So, and I had some really good, I had some really good experiences with these young people, these kids that were involved with gang activity. They, uh, they were really there for me a lot of the times that other people weren't. So I felt, I felt that I had, I owed that responsibility to them. And, you know, the funny thing is that, uh, I didn't even want to become involved with law enforcement. My, my grandmother, uh, my grandmother told us one time we were driving down the roadway and there was a lady on the side of the road and she had a flat tire and there was a highway patrolman helping her fix the tire. And my grandmother said, stop the car. And she took, looked back at me and my brother and said, you see that guy right there? And we said, yeah. She goes, one of you guys is going to do that. You're going to help the community. And I knew she was talking to me because my brother was a big dumb dumb. <laughs> <laughs> for grandmothers uh, yes and I'm thank god for my grandmother i'm i'm a great grandmother so i remember that one for my grandchildren yeah so and uh i've you know i enjoy i really enjoy working with tribal communities because you can you see the impact you really see the impact and you if you help them with a policy or or a code or a resolution or uh a school policy or doing a training, uh, uh, it really does, really does open eyes. I, I went to the tribal school and I did uh, a presentation and I, I have a presentation called uh, The Truth from the Streets and it's an hour, hour and a half and they were quiet as church mice and their mouths were wide open because I used my cases and I showed them examples of kids just like them that made the wrong decision and got in the car at the wrong time, disobeyed their parents, hung out with the wrong people. And I go from case investigation all the way to autopsy and let them know that, you know, this was a very serious problem in tribal lands that they need to really stay connected to their families and their traditional tribal culture too. Uh, the gang culture is not a real culture. It isn't. It's a it's a transitory culture. It's here and it's gone. But the traditional tribal culture lasts forever, and kids don't have, kids need to understand that. Chris, so you mentioned uh, something about tribal communities. Uh, hold on, I need to close some of my windows. <laughs> uh, I'm just wondering if you can go back and talk about maybe one of the solved missing indigenous uh, women or girls cases. We're almost out of time, but I, I know that you have a range of experience, including solving and finding native women. And I want to give our viewers a sense of what some of that work is. Yes. Uh, I'll give you a perfect uh, example in closing. Her name was J Jamie Taylor uh, out of uh, South Dakota. She was a uh, Rosebud tribal member. And uh, it's it's a great story. And uh, she got into uh, drug activity and subsequently had to go to a treatment center. And the, the family was really heavily involved with narcotics and subsequently come to find out that uh, Jamie's family sold her to a sex trafficker uh, out of Mexico that was in the community at the time. And uh, the trafficker went to her treatment center that was off tribal lands and kidnapped her. 
and took her to, was driving her to Nuevo Leon, Texas, where they're going to cross her at, at Nuevo Leon, Texas. And she managed to get a cell phone and text a case, her caseworker. And her caseworker contacted me because I was working there at the time. And reason, the only reason she contacted me is not because I'm this great detective. She contacted me because I, the only one that spoke Spanish. <laughs> so the person, the person that was, uh, was with Jamie trying to help her was a Spanish speaker. So they had to be the phone. So I started talking to her. Uh, they, they told me that, uh, you know, this, this guy was bad news. He was going to sell her. And that they were going to go to Mexico City and, and sell her there to a trafficking organization, international trafficking organization. So we got a we got a ping from her phone in Laredo, Texas. And I remember I used to do training in Laredo, Texas, and I trained them on, on gang investigations. So I con- I went to my office and I started going through all my business cards and I found the sergeant's card that was at my training. So I contacted him. And I said, hey, this is what I got. Da-da-da. He says, what kind of car it is? We have some cameras set up uh, at the border. And I says, well, if you see this car go by, and it was a, a VW Rabbit, a brand new VW Rabbit with Texas plates. And lo and behold, that night, about 2.30 in the morning, I got a call from this sergeant. And he says that that car just crossed. And it's head, it's in Nuevo, Nuevo, Nuevo León, Mexico right now. Uh, so he said, I said, do you know anyone that can, uh, track the car? And he says, well, I have some federales, but federal, federal law enforcement in Mexico is very corrupt. He said, but you're going to need money. So we started collecting funds from the, the tribe and we came up with $10,000. Uh, and we went down there, we went down there and, uh, talked to this federal, uh, Mexican law enforcement officer. And they knew where the, they knew where the car was headed. It was going to Mexico city. Uh, and the roads out there are not like the roads here. There's just like, uh, asphalt and then dirt all the way through. So we knew the, the car was going to Mexico city. So he, you know, used the money that we gave him to pay other people to keep an eye out. And subsequently we found her, we found Jamie in Mexico city. And I contacted the Mexican consulate and I told Mexican, the American consulate, I said, we have a young lady that's a tribal member that is uh, probably going to need some refuge. And they said, well, if you can get her to the American consulate, have her run through the gate, uh, we'll take care of her until we can fly her back to Texas. So uh, Jamie managed to grab another cell phone and tell us where she was. At, at a building that where they were housing about 15 other girls. And uh, we had this federal Mexican officer. They ran to the house. They opened the van. All these guys ran in with guns. And uh, they they kept saying, yay me, yay me, yay me. And then finally, Jamie goes, here. And they grabbed her. And as soon as they grabbed her and took her in the van, a carload of the bad guys came. And they managed to get out of there before they were able to... Uh, take uh take jamie into and what they were doing was they were indoctrinating these girls they were jamie told us that every night there'd be like five or ten men that would come in and sexually assault the girls repeatedly just to indoctrinate them into prostitution and that uh they were supposedly going to be sold to an international trafficking organization of businessmen from all across europe that uh sexually assaulted and victimized these girls out of Mexico city. 
where it's not a crime, unfortunately. So we managed to, we had them drive, drive her to the Mexican consulate. She ran into the, into the gate at the Mexican consulate. And then from there, we had her come to, we uh, paid to fly her to Dallas, Texas. We went to Dallas, Texas. We met her there, uh, brought her back to Dallas. She didn't want to talk to anybody. And I don't, I don't blame her. And from Dallas, Texas, we uh, took her back to Rosebud. And uh, the, the program that she was working with her was very good with her. They took good, really good care of her. And subsequently, she ended up uh, uh, going to a two-year college. And then from a two-year college, she went to uh, a university in, uh, in South Dakota. And now she is a school counselor at a private, college, a private high school in uh, South Dakota. And keep in touch with her. So, so that's a good story. It ended up, uh, but it was it was total coincidence, accident, sticking to it, using whatever resources we could find, and uh, and by the way, we did all that and without a police report because nobody wanted to write the police report. The feds didn't want it. Tribal police didn't want it, and uh, none of the other. Chamberlain Police Department, which is where they took her from. Chamberlain Police Department said that's not our jurisdiction because she's a tribal So we did all that work without a police report. Uh, this has definitely been a lot to process. And, you know, I go back to your note that you don't take no from an answer, even in the <laughs> of command, uh, which, you know, seems like you carry a lot. And I want to turn it over to Lucy for our final closing. It's something that we, um, frequently do when we're uh, just wrapping up is to ask us this question. So go ahead, Lucy, take it away. Thanks, Emily. Um, so Chris, it sounds like you have a very intense job and life experiences overall. And listen, listening to you share your stories, um, I'm really curious to know what you do for self-care. What does your downtime look like? I'm a, I'm a golfer okay. and we, we rescue dogs. Do you, how many dogs yes. have you guys rescued to date? Uh, my wife is, she's, she told me the other day, she's about, she's at about 1200 oh. behind me. You see these doors right here. There's, I have 12 dogs at the house. So what do you do with them on your downtime? We walk them, take them to the park, uh, teach them not to fight with each other <laughs> I do, we we work with them with regards to uh basic commands and uh adopted try to get them adopted try to get them to i we take all the really rough cases uh most my dogs are all rescues and they all have pretty hard luck stories so mm -hmm. so i play golf and then we rescue dogs so and they are a handful you can just one of them sparking right now just because i said that <laughs> thank you for sharing that uh thank you so much chris uh we appreciate everything you've uh, shared with us today and i'm sure we'll get more questions and we certainly have more to talk about with you here we do want to give a war cry out to jamie taylor from the rosebud uh uh a Rosebud tribal member, a uh, solved case of Chris's and a, a person, you know, that is working in the community. Um, we also want to give a war cry to those working in tribal communities and take on this notion of I won't take no for an answer because the families need uh, answers.
Um, and Absolutely. we also want to give a war cry to Chris's grandmother. What was your grandmother's name, Chris? Her name was Rosie Barra. Rosie Barra. We want to give a war cry to Rosie Barra. <laughs> yep. and, if at, and if at any point during this session you need culturally appropriate advocacy or support, please contact Strong Hearts Native Hotline. It is 1-844-7-NATIVE. Again, it's 1-844-762-8483. Or you can chat online at strongheartshelpline.org. And that is a 24-7, uh, uh, you can contact them anytime. We do want to thank our live audience that's tuned in. Uh, it really helps us out with your uh, live questions and just observations and watching and hanging out with us a bit. We did get some messages from people that were tuning in live saying it's a great interview so far. Again, we are a War Cry podcast. We are an Indigenous-led podcast surviving under the duress of colonization and intergenerational trauma towards self-determination. I'm Emily Washings. Thank you to co-hosts Robin Pibashi, Lucy Smartlowit, and Patricia Whitefoot. Thank you to our guest, Chris Cuestas from National Violence Prevention Resource Center. For credits, we have support from Native Women in Action, edited and produced by Robin Pibashi, music by Lee Sekakwaptiwa, logo and shirts by John Only Schellenberger, where you can also get your War Cry uh, t-shirt merch. Mm -hmm. And again, please like, subscribe, or leave a comment. It really helps us out when uh, you see that on social media and in the different uh, subscription areas. Thank you very much. Bring me back to your community. And contact Chris to bring him to your community. <laughs> <laughs>